My first rugby experience was actually in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. I remember thinking about the sport as I experienced it as true American experience. All the sports that I remember playing as a kid rolled up into one, but it was really the friendships the camaraderie, those experiences from those players initially really hooked me on the game and understanding that rugby was more than just a sport. I played in three World Cups and I can't imagine the feeling it would be to be an American player standing on home soil playing in a World Cup. It was awe-inspiring at the three I was at, and I get goosebumps thinking about what it would be like to hear the national anthem right before kicking off on home soil. I think in a lot of ways, America is a bridge to the world. Every culture is here. I think that's why it would have record attendances, record profitability. It's an exciting time for America to become the centerpiece for this sport. One of the biggest aspects of being able to host a World Cup is it creates this unified vision for rugby here in America. We have such an opportunity to grow this sport and to put on the best spectacle of rugby that we've ever seen. And that kind of inspiration to galvanize our youth programs, our club community, our college community, all together around this common vision, really I think can allow us to set USA Rugby on a trajectory that we don't even know where where it'll go yet. Whether this is your first experience with rugby or you've been in rugby for decades, this is an incredible opportunity for us to bring a pinnacle sporting event to American soil. My goal is for all of us to come together, bind together, and present a winning bid for both the Men's and Women's World Cup for the United States of America. Please consider joining and supporting us all as we go on this journey. I look forward to seeing you along the way. Good morning and thank you for joining us. I'm Nedra Pickler and I'll be your moderator today. As you all know, we're here today to publicly launch the United States bid to host the Men's Rugby World Cup in 2027 or 2031 and the Women's Rugby World Cup in 2029. It's an exciting day and for all of us here and for the future of rugby here in the United States and around the world. Here today to discuss the bid, recent progress made and the road ahead are USA Rugby World Cup bid chair, Jim Brown, USA Chief Executive, USA Rugby Chief Executive Officer, Ross Young, and World Rugby Hall of Fame inductee and Women's Sports Foundation President, Phaedra Knight. All three will give opening remarks, and then Jim will offer a little more detail on the bid status. And then Ross, Jim, and Phaedra will be available to answer any questions that you have. For those of you who are joining us virtually via Zoom, go ahead and just put your questions in the chat box. And for those of you here in the room, you can just raise your hand and we will call on you. And I'll turn it over to Jim. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for being here. It's really a, an exciting day for us. It's really a proud moment for us to share with you some of the formal work that we've been doing and certainly the progress we've been making on the bid side of uh, preparing to submit a bid and potentially host in, in the future uh, one or two Rugby World Cups here in the United States uh, of America and the Americas in general. Uh, just to give everybody a, a bit of history, we, we started this process formally uh, a little over a year ago, August of uh, 2020, middle of the pandemic. So I haven't seen most of my staff working on, on this bid in, in a while. But the reality is, is we started um, based on the opportunity of potentially hosting, hosting World Cups in the United States, especially following the, the Rugby World Cup success in Japan of 2019. I think that spurred even more energy and excitement behind that process. Um, one of the first things we did, and, and for me, having worked on several World Cup soccer bids, as well as hosting, been part of delivering some of those along with Olympic Games, I think one of the first things we did was we went out and, and reached out to host cities and stadiums that potentially would be 
great opportunities for us to host uh, and host matches in those cities. And based on previous experience, I have to confirm that the enthusiasm, the interest and the energy coming from those communities, those stadiums, those city officials was overwhelmingly positive. And that was really a, a key part of what spurred us to even continue further. We then took that enthusiasm and got some technical requirements from World Rugby through the, their bid process and can confirm now that we would very well deliver the requirements uh, of a Rugby World Cup. In particular, uh, a challenge in the United States um, field size in the NFL stadiums was, is a challenge that we all anticipated. We feel very comfortable to confirm that most of our stadiums do comply now and will or are willing to comply in the future. Included in that is an understanding that the window that the Rugby World Cup is hosted, obviously during a very busy time for us here in the United States, uh, the stadiums have also confirmed windows of opportunity, two to three weeks each, and sometimes more where they're willing to adjust their existing tenants, namely NFL or college football, to accommodate Rugby World Cup during that traditional window for the event. We then um, did a financial review, um, both cost and, and revenue, which Dan mentioned on the video uh, a little bit, um, and, and confirmed that it, it, there's an opportunity there not only to deliver a successful and profitable event, but also to turn a lot of that revenue potentially to helping grow the game, not only in the United States, not only in the region, but hopefully globally for World Rugby and beyond. So we're very excited. As we like to say, um, we, we want to host it, and we really feel quite strongly that perhaps now is the time for us to take that opportunity and do the best we can to not only win, but ultimately to host uh, one or two Rugby World Cups in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Again, just to echo, welcome everybody here in person, everyone online. You know, since Jim mentions excitement, it's an understatement, really. I think that Jim and Phaedra were, were you know, were both board members um, of USA Rugby when we really first started discussing the possibility of, uh, of, of hosting Rugby World Cups in, in the US. And undoubtedly, the desire was there to do it, to do it properly. Um, and, you know, as a union, for us, it's massively important that the two pillars to, to what we're about and why we exist really is, is all around you know, increasing participation and improving performance all the way through the various different levels and ultimately in, in the national teams. And there is no greater platform to show that than a, than a Rugby World Cup. Um, you know, the major events themselves you know generate a huge amount of interest at various levels and how do we how do we engage how do we build the plans around doing that to meet those goals ultimately of of, of increasing the numbers that play the game and improvements access to additional games at various different levels for for our national teams i think unifying, galvanizing, getting everyone together, pulling in the direction across all our communities. And it's, it's great to see members of the community here in person today and no doubt watching online. You know, we all, we all want this game to be where it, we all feel it deserves to be within the US landscape. And, you know, the, the knock-on effect of, of having an, a, a, events like Rugby World Cups in the US will give us the opportunity to get together, get behind it and really show what we can do. I think, you know, when you look at it from the other side, you know, the, the whole sporting landscape in the US is something that, you know, the rest of the world is jealous about it. The, the role sport plays within, within US culture, you know, there are numerous, various different stats over there from surveys around you know numbers of sports fans and you know quoted 40 to 45 million of those 
US sports fans have an interest in the game, which is phenomenal. How do we harness that? How do we engage that? You know, how do we get everyone unified in, in making the most out of this? So, you know, across all levels of the game, youth, high school, college, club, professional entities like MLR, the WPL, I think we can all benefit from the knock-on effect of, of hosting. The, the evidence is there for everyone to see. So it's great to be here. And obviously we'll, we'll go through a lot of those things in a little bit more detail, but you know, it's, it's a huge opportunity and you know, we really have to do everything we can to bring these events to the US. So thanks for your support and I'll pass on the favor. Well, I just want to echo um, what an incredible opportunity this is and, and echo what both Ross and Jim have previously stated tremendous opportunity in this for us um, and there's particular tremendous opportunity in the women's game uh, given my experience as a national team player I can't imagine anything better um, and anything that would mean more to rugby players um, both current and past uh, fans supporters future fans um, than hosting a rugby world cup in the U.S. Now, in my current role as president of the Women's Sports Foundation, we work tirelessly every day to improve the profile of women's sports. That's what we do advocate from an advocacy perspective, from a resource perspective. Um, and so I cannot overstate how important it would be to see uh, women's rugby matches from the World Cup in NFL stadiums. That's just unheard of. Um, as, as you know, as it exists now. And so, you know, the great thing too is that the US really boasts strong women's sports infrastructure and interests. And those are two things that are lacking um, pretty vastly globally. Um, so this makes, uh, gives us a unique opportunity here in the US to host the 2029 Rugby Women's World Cup. Now, women's rugby is by far one of the fastest growing sports um, in the U.S. With, and we've seen somewhere around a 36% increase over the last 10 years. So with all of this, you know, I'm excited. I hope you're excited. Um, and we can't really wait to see how a U.S.-hosted Women's World Cup inspires girls not only here but all over the world to really get involved and get in the game thank you great thanks for that all of that um right now we will go ahead and dive into a few more details uh jim do you want to go ahead and kick us off sure uh, thanks thank you so we'll, we'll go uh briefly uh, i promise briefly go through the powerpoint presentation that was prepared in anticipation of this meeting and, and most of you should have copies of just to confirm some of the, the key details I, I think the first slide provides um, data and information that really I think presents the rugby world cup as we like to say uh, the third most popular sporting event in the world and as I said from an opportunity standpoint standpoint the United States has hosted uh, Olympics it will be hosting its third FIFA World Cup, having hosted the men's and the women's, I'm sorry, fourth, uh, men's and the women's World Cup uh, previously. Um, so I think this data really confirms to everybody really the magnitude of what not only the Rugby World Cup was able to deliver in Japan, but in an emerging market, which I think allowed us uh, even more, as I said earlier, more support for, for taking advantage of, of World Rugby's bid opportunity coming up. Uh, the, the next slide um, provides some information obviously on the, on the women's, the most recent women's uh, rugby world cup in 2017. Obviously the, the opportunity for growth is great. The data points at, at the growth um, with, with upcoming women's world cup coming up in, in New Zealand. I think everybody will be looking at that carefully to ensure that it's heading in the direction we all expect it to be going. Uh, and as it goes to the future, our, our sense 
was to, to really add ourselves to the mix potentially and, and focusing on 2029, our, our Women's World Cup bid of 2029. We feel we could add that potential women's uh, growth and, and certainly growth to growth to rugby in the United States in general. So coupled with, with all that data coming out of the most recent Rugby World Cups um, is Rugby World Cup's intention to award four Rugby World Cups uh, at one time, which uh, allowed us to, when we embarked a year ago in our review, we, we certainly studied on the men's side, 2731. I, I think as we, we embarked on that, there was a, a sense that 27 might be more immediate, more something we could really understand and target in the near future. But over the course of say the last six, seven months of work, I think it's clear to say that our preference um, is 2031. Given the extra time, uh, we might want to focus on things like developing the, the game, um, developing the market for rugby and really maximizing that potentially longer period of time if we are given that opportunity. We are prepared to bid on 2027 and we are also preparing material for that, but certainly uh, that preference has been shared with World Rugby and, and confirming that today. Along with 2029, the idea is to couple those two events together if we are given the opportunity to host both and, and run them as one organization, which obviously allows some synergies, um, revenue and cost sharing, which I think provides a, an interesting package to World Rugby as they approach their decisions. Here's a, a slide outlining where we sit in, in our part of the world, confirming that the Rugby World Cup has never been uh, in, in the Americas, North, South, or United States specifically. And I think we see that as an opportunity. And again, as said, Japan was the first time it's been hosted in, in Asia with great success. And I think we, we hope to trampoline off of that success and, and provide something even greater and, and potentially uh, as impactful, if not more impactful than world rugby seen uh, in recent history. Uh, as we go through that, I think it's important to highlight that we, we've reached a, a, a consensus on our hosting concept um, in both men and women the event would be treated as a national event. The data coming out of 2017 on the women's side was, was in Ireland, which was essentially played in, in one, one town. We plan to play the Women's World Cup, given the opportunity, six to eight cities, uh, and really treat it much like most big events are, are treated in the United States as a national event covering all, all parts of the country and all the big cities. Big stadiums and medium-sized stadiums would be approach on the women's side. On the men's side, only major stadiums are, are the focus right now, um, 50,000 seats or more. Um, and we, we really have planned with the cities that if, it, if there is a concern with some games, maybe not having that opportunity to get to that number, each of the cities have offered a smaller stadium as an option if need be. We don't feel like that's necessary. We're, we're quite bullish in our approach to fill all the stadiums as required uh, and as expected and, and really maximizing the opportunity of having all those seats available for development reasons, perhaps a, a cheaper ticket or less expensive ticket for, for rugby fans to be able to go in and really experience rugby World Cups in, in person. As we also do in the United States, we're going to treat it as we call a mega event. So it's not, um, it's not a, a, a a regular regional or, or national event, we're going to treat it as a big event activating the whole country. So unlike an Olympics, which is focused on a city, we expect all of our cities to really activate it and, and hopefully really make it feel like a national, a national platform, a national big, big event, big event. Uh, and then also the final piece, which, which Ross will present later, is, is the focus is to generate revenue so that we can fund and provide pre-World Cup uh, development and, and grow the game leading into the event um, events. And then 
obviously leaving a legacy uh, fund to continue growing the sport and, and hopefully leveraging the sport to the benefit of all kids and players and, and participants. As far as uh, our host cities, next slide. I think we, we have 28 cities still very interested in, in hosting a rugby world cup. In most cases, well, we have 28 cities on this slide. 24 of those cities have either voiced or we expect will confirm that they're interested in hosting women's world cup as well, not only, not only men. So that's a positive. Um, we, we've reached out to all the cities. Uh, the big stadiums, of course, are busy uh, during the traditional window. And as I said earlier, um, each of them has confirmed a window within their NFL season or their, their season where they feel that they could accommodate us for two to three weekends at a minimum, in some cases, even more time to potentially host matches. Um, that includes um, all, all the big stadiums. Seattle, San Francisco, LA, Denver, Kansas City, Dallas, Houston. So going east, west to east, I think we're quite confident we can, we can do it. Um, New York City, which hosts two NFL teams, has also confirmed that they'd be able to, to accommodate um, at least two weekends for, for Rugby World Cup. So we've done a lot of due diligence there and feel quite comfortable. We expect, as it says here, 10 to 12 men's Stadiums for, for men's rugby World Cup 27 or 31, and six to eight for women in 2029 is the idea. And, and confirming that it's not just a small group of us uh, and USA Rugby preparing the bid, we have extensive support from, from rugby, as Ross pointed out, but also legal, government, um, event, and, and obviously a lot of necessary support to carry out such an extensive effort and, and preparing the bid accordingly. And then finally, for me, I think as we approach uh, a, a developing sport like rugby here in the United States, we've, we've conducted some surveys, uh, a survey, which has come out as of yesterday, we got some of this information which confirms consistent and steady support for not only rugby, but rugby World Cup, not only men's rugby World Cup, women's, women's rugby as well. So you can look at this and obviously over the course of the next few months, we'll probably start sharing more of this information. Then. So now I'll, I'll hand over to Ross, who will go, as I said earlier, get into the, I'm oh, sorry, growth of the game, but before I hand to Ross, confirming that the total number of tickets we feel are available, obviously estimating and, and predicting stadiums themselves, we expect to have over 4.1 million tickets between the two World Cups available for sale for people to attend our matches and fully expect to have those full and maximize the opportunity for everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Um, you know, coming back to that, the theme that, that we talked about earlier, um, you know, the really unfortunate, along with Jim, to have seen very firsthand by being on the other side of the, the fence, if you like, with, with my previous roles with World Rugby, um, you know, and been observer, been part of observer programs at, at other other major events. There's, it goes without saying well-delivered, professional, high-profile major events generate growth and interest in the game. Um, you know, you just look at the US, for examples, you know, Jim mentioned 94 and 99 in particular, the knock-on effect and benefits that's had for you know, MLS and, and soccer in the US and, and certainly for women's soccer in, in 99. It's just you know, the way events are run now, the ancillary events that go around the events is engaging. It gets people's interest, it raises profile. The, you know, the ability to do that, the ability to have more high profile games. Look at this weekend, for example. Um, you know, we're going to have, you know, around 50,000 plus people at FedEx Field for a one-off game. 
that is just a one-off game. And we can do that without the benefit of traveling fans that you normally have at those type of events. And you know, Rugby World Cup has a history of having very large numbers of, of overseas fans coming into the territory. So, you know, having that almost talismatic North Star type of event, you know, both for the men and for the women's, gives us the opportunity to raise the profile, raise interest, to allow us, as Jim mentioned, to drive strategic value for investment that's going to see the requisite returns that are required that will allow us to do what we all collectively need to do as a rugby family within the US to make this game successful as a sport and really get it to where it needs to be as accepted across the US as one of the mainstream sports. This is the opportunity for us to do it. Put that North Star out there, put that anchor down this is it, this is what we're gonna aim for, this is what we're gonna to use to galvanize everyone to get behind it. So yeah, a, a huge opportunity, a huge opportunity. And I think that, you know, the unique factor of that that has on the women's game, Phaedra is gonna to, going to touch on next. Yeah, I mean, we've seen it, particularly over the last two years, two to three years, uh, an impressive uh, growth in women's sports across many landscapes. Certainly on the rise for participation. Um, um, definite interest in watching women's sports. Uh, you know, just in 2021 alone, the WNBA regular season viewership was up 49%. Um, and over, you know, over 2020, it was up another 24%. So, we're seeing dramatic increases um, in the women's landscape. Um, there's there's a big following also. 84% uh, of the general sports fans are interested in women's sports. Um, and there's been an improvement in investments in women's sports. So all in all, I think bringing the Women's Rugby World Cup presents a tremendous opportunity to accelerate both the growth of women's sports and the tournament itself, um, not just here in the U.S., but this, you know, as, as Ross so eloquently says, it's going to have a great knock-on effect across across the world. Um, so, you know, we should certainly seize this opportunity. Great. So at this time, our panel can take any questions that you might have. Um, we have journalists from around the world uh, joining us on Zoom, which I think is a reflection of the global interest in this bid. Um, so a reminder for those of you who are on Zoom, go ahead and just type your question in the chat box and we will read it aloud here. Uh, for those of you here in the room who may have questions, you can just raise your hand in the old fashioned way uh, and we'll call on you. Just please state your name and media outlet before you ask. Um, I will go ahead and start by reading one of the questions that came in on Zoom. We have a few already. Um, and Gerard Farrick from Around the Rings asks, uh, you know, Jim, I know you talked a little bit about the your thinking on 2027 versus 2031, but he asks, uh, with the Southern Hemisphere overdue to host a Men's World Cup in Australia interested in 2027, have you been given any indication as to whether 2027 or 2031 is more likely? See, Jim passed the hospital pass to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the answer currently is, is you know that's that's world rugby's call you know we've as jim alluded to we've you know we've we've dealt with the bid criteria that's come through we've been very clear in our operational capability to to deliver on both um you know i've i've had a number of discussions with you know our friends in australia um but it's you know, as Jim said, our preference would be 31. And I think it's right that we focus on that just now, but it's, it's really for World Rugby to do their, their assessments. And I think that, you know, what is worth pointing out that what has been great about the, this bid process, having been on the other side of it, is 
World Rugby have changed and it's much more of an interactive managed process now than it ever has been before. So there is lots of two, three-way dialogue. It's not just a case of here's your bid documentation, thousands of pages of it, go and fill it out and submit it and then they'll make a decision. It's, it, it's much more dialogue. So I know World Rugby are having a number of internal discussions between, you know, between all the interested bidding parties and they're going to, you know, they're going to present that progress report at the council meetings late in November and we're all really sitting to wait what the outcomes of those meetings are about how we focus on the last phase of this process, if you like, between, between those council meetings in November and the, you know, the, the awarding announcements in the May meetings. Great. Um, so Johnny Lewis from Rugby Wrap-Up asks, are you worried about the famously unfair voting system for Rugby World Cup bids where the big tier one unions have most of the votes and influence, which will make it a lot harder for small union, a small union like the USA to influence the big unions to gain their vote? I think I already answered that from the previous question. Uh, uh, you know, World Rugby have modernized that, like all major events, you, know, you look at examples of FIFA with the IOC now about trying to remove politics as much as you can from the process. And I think this, this managed process and the, the increased dialogue removes some of that. Um, and it's certainly World Rugby's intention for it to be an open, clear, transparent process. So we've got to put our best foot forward. I think, you know, the the stats, the figures, the facts will speak for themselves. And hopefully, you know, well, I'm confident that, that we, we have that requisite data and information to, to take away that and make a compelling case, standalone case for hosting. Uh, Chris Boy from the Daily Mail is asking, uh, Vancouver was listed as a potential host city. Does this mean the bid could involve neighboring countries, even in South America, like Argentina, or is this very much a standalone US bid? Yeah, our, our focus is to really treat it as much as a US focused bid as possible. Obviously, Vancouver offers proximity to a city like Seattle which is very attractive to not only us, but any, any fan who comes to travel uh, and, and wants to visit that area for, for a few matches. So I think there's a unique opportunity with Vancouver. We would treat that not necessarily as a co-bidding between Canada and the United States, but more of a host city type arrangement, which doesn't really extend uh, the unions and, and the, the broader Canadian requirements as much as treating it like a standalone venue that happens to be very close to Seattle. So the, the answer would be no at this stage, but, but certainly uh, I see Vancouver in particular being an attractive opportunity for us and one of the cities we'll consider at the right time. And we'll make a final selection with World Rugby if we are to host. And I'd just like to add, and it's also for 29 and 31 not just a, a men's, but also a women's rugby World Cup opportunity in Vancouver. Matt McCarthy from Rugby Wrap-Up asks, when France bid for the 2023 tournament, their guarantee was 150 million. That was underwritten by the government. Typically the host nation's government will give what's called a sovereign guarantee for the cost, not only to guarantee profit, but also to cover losses. How are you going to replace that sovereign guarantee since it's, it, it won't be likely to come from the US government? Well, when Jim gives me that look, um, <laughs> I'll answer it. <laughs> no, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's a great question and it's something that, you know, that, again, I keep going back to that same point, the benefits of the ongoing dialogue with World Rugby is when we embarked on this process, we were fortunate enough to have this phase being funded by private equity through a small group of rugby stakeholders, which has been phenomenal. Um, there has been a lot of interest from various private equity groups about how they can help build and support that. I think it, that would be fundamentally different 
So there are a number of options. There is a lot of interest out there about how the, you know, how the, the cash flow aspects, if you like, of the event would be financed, but we've not committed to any. And it, it's really part of, it's putting those options on the table about how we're going to move that forward. And that will really form part of the discussions post the November meetings with World Rugby about the best way to move forward. Um, because of the unique, unique nature, as you said, of, of how Rugby World Cup has been supported and funded with pretty much federal cash previously and how that can't happen in the US. So there are multiple options, but that's really a key part of the next phase between November and May. Great, uh, Phaedra, this question is for you. It's from Alex Goff at the Goff Rugby Report. Uh, we haven't seen women's rugby World Cups played in large venues previously. Do you think venues or stakeholders need convincing that the women's game can fill big stadiums? And how do you feel that this bid has treated the women's event with this new level of support? Um, so answer the first question, you probably don't pose the second question again for me. <laughs> um, right. Thank you. Yes, I think it's in the numbers in terms of proving uh, that a women's event can you know, fill a stadium and it can be a, a, a profitable success, but a success altogether. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's about also utilizing, like you said, the shared resources of the men's um, World Cup and um, really driving, you know, driving, you know, seat butts into seats, as they say. So uh, I, I do believe that that's something that we can showcase, we can improve based on, you know, the 2017 World Cup, obviously. Um, and all of the things that have come with that. And then your second The second question. part was about how do you feel that this bid has treated the women's event with this new level of support? Uh, I think it's been phenomenal. I think this is, you know, this model, um, when I think about other sports, um, you know, has maybe been used with mixed martial arts in terms of sandwiching and, and bringing in the women's game. Um, and integrating it into the men's game to increase sort of that viewership and awareness. Um, but not very many team sports have done this, if any. Um, you know, soccer doesn't necessarily, and look at the impactful growth of the women's soccer game. Um, I mean, maybe basketball has come somewhat close, but not really. Um, and standalone, the WNBA has, again, talk about 49% increase in viewership in one year alone. Um, so I think it has, this is, this is a great way, this is actually setting the stage for other sports to follow um, and bringing the women's game into the men's game, sharing the resources and really um, attracting investment from many respects into the game so that it can actually gain some momentum, some tremendous momentum to be sort of standalone as well as some point in the future. Great, thanks for that, Pedro. Um, Rob Wooler from AFP asks, how confident are you that the Rugby World Cup will be able to compete for the attention of casual US sports fans, given that it will be up to, against the juggernauts of the NFL <laughs> and college football at that time of the year? As we said earlier, we're, we're really quite bullish about that opportunity. And um, obviously, the, we have time to prepare ourselves and, and work with the communities. I think part of our approach to the host cities, in particular in the stadiums, is that they're going to be partners in the success of the Rugby World Cups played in their stadiums and their cities. So they will be partners with us to ensure. In the case of San Francisco, the, the group leading the San Francisco bid is the 49ers. In the case of MetLife or Boston with the, the Kraft family, it's the Patriots and New York Jets, New York Giants. Our partners are those, those entities, and I think our success is their success, and we're really quite confident that that shape will, will help us greatly in ensuring success 
even with them being as active and, and the focus of the United States anyway uh, at the time. But we're, we're really quite confident, as confident as we can be, and I think we'll develop a plan that allows us to work with those groups and, and really provide success for all of us. While we're on this, um, Tom Hamilton from ESPN has a, a good follow-up. Given the scheduling of the NFL and college football season and the clash there with potential venues, how do you plan to deal with the potential scheduling conflict? Would you ideally like this to be moved out of the October to November window? Uh, I think our answer to that question is we are prepared to deliver the World Cup in the traditional window. Um, we, we've obviously understand that if we were to be in a different time earlier in the year, late, late summer, um, it would work not only for us, but perhaps for, for world rugby as well. But but we are confident that we can do it in September, November period. And that's really our focus. Uh, but certainly we would be able to discuss with whoever feels that they want to consider another another window of opportunity. Just to add to Jim's point on that as well, I think that uh, is one of the other benefits to both, you know, focusing on 29 and 31 and giving us a longer runway to be able to be more innovative in certain aspects of, of how and what we deliver. Um, you know, and a number of the key factors, even though when you go through the bid process, you have to, you know, you have to document and prove that it can be done in the standard format, but it doesn't get locked in really until that sort of four to six year cycle prior to the event. So I think the further exploration of the opportunities, the benefits of potentially tweaking the windows is, you know, is another upside of, of having, you know, having a longer runway, if you like, to, to really get into that detail. We don't have any questions in the room. Go ahead and raise your hand if you do. Um, we have another question on Zoom. Um, and this is from Ron Luti from the San Francisco Business Times. What have been the issues with the NFL stadium field size and how have those concerns been mitigated? Jim. <laughs> the, the issues with an, an NFL stadium in particular, not all of them, but some of them, um, is that NFL stadium fields tend to be narrower than what both soccer and, and rugby require. <coughs> in, in this case, with the, with the World Cup soccer tournament being played in 2026, many of the stadiums we're looking at are actually dealing with that question through their discussions with FIFA. And some of them will comply. Most of them say they, they plan to comply at Selective, which obviously we can benefit from. Um, in terms of Generally, the requirements of the stadium, our stadiums exceed expectations in most every area except for the width of the field. And right now, our count of the 28 major stadiums being considered, close to 20 of them will either comply or already do comply with another seven or eight currently considering widening their field if they're selected to be rugby World Cup cities. So we're, we're quite confident we can get to that 12 number quite, quite easily. But certainly the more um, we have, the more opportunity we have in selecting the right cities, not only on stadium, but other, other requirements that we have for when we work on. Okay, so um, Alex Goff of the Goff Rugby Report asks, uh, profitability in the Rugby World Cup is massively important to world rugby, but that can increase risk for the host nation. How confident are you of financial success and also avoiding a financial disaster? Hey, Jim Starr, enough of your opinion. You clean up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, we're, we're not only we, but certainly we've presented those numbers to World Rugby, and I think everybody feels quite strongly that, that based on, and as I said in the introduction, based on ticket alone, we feel that we can deliver a, a, a sizable profit comparable to previous rugby World Cups, um, even with the potential government, government guarantees that it might get paid by the United States in one way, shape, or form. So we're, we're quite confident that based on the modeling we've done, the detail uh, and 
collaboration with World Rugby in terms of ticket prices and sell-through and international travelers, et cetera, that we feel quite confident that we have certainly on the revenue side and, and the profit side, uh, an attractive option for, for World Rugby. And I just think to, to add to that point that Jim's made is that one of the parameters prior to engaging in this whole process from USA Rugby is that there was no risk to the to the national governing body around you know, operational delivery or financial risk. So it, it is a separate entity, as I've mentioned before. To date, it's been it's been covered by uh, by by private equity. Um, and World Rugby have also been, you know, as Jim alluded to, been been made, that's been made, made very clear to them as well that as we move forward with a model, the model has to be standalone and has to be separate from the union so that we don't we don't expose any risk because obviously we have responsibilities we said to community members you say some of them in the room that that, that doesn't happen and that uh, but you know I think the reverse is also true if this is done properly as we've said and we build the right strategy around it with world rugby as a partner there's there's huge opportunities to almost pull forward some of that revenue for investment at grassroots level and high performance on the build-up to the tournament, which will ultimately raise the returns of the tournament itself by that pre-investment. So again, we'll get stuck into that more between November and May, but you know, we're confident the reverse will be true. It'll actually lead to more money available that we can help in conjunction with you say with, with with the community partners to 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 make the event ultimately more successful uh kat eversano usa youth and high school and howard university rugby compared to other countries uh the u.s is a vast geography to tackle what have you all identified that you would think would be the maybe the top three benefits and the top three challenges of hosting here? Jim, that's in your wheelhouse. <laughs> we see the the just the, the, the country and the size of the country as a, as a benefit. I, I think while there's challenges with team travel and fan travel, uh, this isn't the first time the United States has hosted a major international event that is, is national. Women's World Cup 99, Women's World Cup 2003, FIFA World Cup in 94. They were great success. I was in Stanford Stadium working that venue in Brazil, who ended up winning the 94 World Cup, traveled all over the country and seen no, no, no problem. They obviously won, won the event, and, and I think the event was really deemed as a, as a great success. Um, even to this day, I think the separation of the cities encourages people to, to really buy tickets in their city or buy tickets within within their region, which also ensures the, the sale of, and an opportunity for us to sell and fill those stadiums. Uh, to this day, the 94 World Cup, even though it was only 32, uh, 52 games in 1994, still is the record holder for FIFA World Cup uh, attendance, um, even expanding through through the most recent FIFA World Cup. So I think that's the size of the country allows people in, in larger areas to, to travel in locally. Uh, and also, uh, I think our infrastructure and the benefit of the United States is all of our host cities have international airports, which allow people to travel directly into wherever the games are being played and travel from city to city. As Ross uh, and I talked last night, I mean, travel, air travel in the United States is probably comparable to what people do in other parts of the world with train or, or other means of transportation are more common. So for us to, to travel a couple hours is not a big deal in some cases, but, but certainly we'll, we'll make it very accessible for fans to be able to travel and get from the games. And just to, to add to that, Karen, it's, it's a good point is, you know, every World Cup has its own unique challenges. The, the first one I was involved with in 2003 in Australia was a similar question about 
it's a big country. So how do you combat that by putting pods or if you like pools of activity in different cities that that generate that local interest, but you know keep down some of the logistical elements till you come to crossing over different games. So we've, you know, Jim and the team with the expertise they have have run through various different models about how we can combat that. But you know, compared to what ultimately was a very successful event in New Zealand where the reverse was true. There wasn't enough hotel rooms there to bring in cruise ships. They, there, are, there are always challenges with the size and scale of, of, you know, of a major event of this size. And, you know, and the differences, as we've, you know, as we've talked about between single city, multi-event, multi-event uh, criteria such as the Olympics to the multi-city single sport like a soccer world cup and a rugby world cup. Great, I think we have time for a couple more here if there aren't any in the room. Yeah, go ahead. Sure, um, some quick two-part questions. So John from Rugby Morning, a little over two months out now from the uh, January proposal deadline. So first part, what are the final pieces that you need to fall into place for the official bid? And then two, are there plans to uh, publicly announce the NFL stadium or cities that will be part of the official bid? Well, I think the, the, the first part, I, I think it, part of the reason we're here in D.C. is we, we're, we're in the process of engaging with the with government and get the necessary requirements that we we have um, to, to capture from the federal government and, and, and other pieces of the government. So that's partly, partially what we have to prepare uh, still. Uh, we, we were in the process of wrapping up what we call our RFP or RFI from the host cities, so final bits of technical information, number of hotel rooms we have available in the cities to, to other details that might be uh, obviously part of their hundreds and thousands of questions that they, they're asking us to fill out. So we're in the process of doing that. And really, we also want to develop some, I'd say, PR material to be able to share to others. Um, but generally, we feel like we're I would probably say it's ahead of schedule in terms of what we're going to deliver by, by January. Um, to, to your second point, right now, everybody, uh, all 28 cities are still candidates. We, we expect, um, based on the latest RFI information that we're capturing, that we may, we may drop a, a couple of cities, maybe get down to that 22 number, but we're, we're comfortable with 20 to 22 cities being uh, in the final proposal um, submitted in January. Yeah, and I think just, just to add to that, as, as, as Jim's alluded to, that, you know, the preference is, as we said, 31. And, you know, it's a lot of those venues, some of them will be update, updated. There may be new venues appear. So, that's always happened historically is what you present in the bid is, is really as if you were going to deliver it tomorrow virtually, but there's still always enough flexibility before you lock in match schedules and lock in venues to, you know, for that to happen down the line. And the, you know, as, as we said, what, what has been refreshing, certainly from, I think from mine and Jim's point of view, having been on the other side of the fence, let's say again, is that, this open two-way dialogue as we've been uploading various elements of information. So it's not a case of World Rugby don't see anything until that bid is submitted in January. There's, you know, we're pretty much gonna have everything in draft form ready for them to consider that they will update their, you know, their council on it at the end of November, as I mentioned earlier. So there's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to be prepared, ready, and willing to, 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 to deal with whatever direction we get from World Rugby on next steps. Charlie Morgan from the Daily Telegraph asks, am I right in thinking that you are aiming for 50,000 fans at all matches at both men's and women's Rugby World Cups? No, I, I think uh, the, the idea is that at least 50,000 spectators, if not more, um, in all of the men's matches, 48 games. We expect uh, to fill those stadiums with 
there is an opportunity for a stadium in San Diego, 35,000 seats to be used. So maybe, maybe we make an exception there. But um, we, we feel confident that the large NFL, large college stadiums will be the model for and the host of all the men's rugby World Cup games. The idea of the women's in 29 is to use larger stadiums in four to six, maybe even eight games, depending on, on the interest and, and the movement uh, on tickets and, and interest in those communities. But of the 32 games for that event, we expect of 24 or so would probably be played in smaller professional stadiums like MLS type stadiums or, or college stadiums, which accommodate the people. So uh, a little bit more tapered back on 2029, but still quite quite aggressive and, and, and bullish in terms of being able to sell out large NFL stadiums with big games. Open game finals, semifinals, that kind of thing. Alex Lowe from the Times asks, you mentioned the 49ers involvement in this bid. How many of the NFL franchises would you consider to be partners in this venture? The, the ones that essentially are running and operating the stadiums. And that's why I mentioned uh, MetLife as well. So 49ers are modeled. Uh, Seattle as well. Uh, the Rose Bowl uh, is not owned by an NFL stadium, but they're very much partners in all of that. So that's going to be our approach to the cities and certainly our dialogue with them. Uh, anywhere there's an NFL stadium, there NFL team in a stadium, they'll be impacted. And so far, whether they're operating the stadium or going to be impacted by us, we expect to have extensive dialogue in, in their financial involvement or the money. I think just, just to add to that as, as well is that, you know, the bid and the, the formal part of the process is one thing, but, you know, part of bringing this event here to DC this weekend was almost test the number of those relationships and. Washington Football Club have been awesome in, in helping, you know, operationally and, and promote the, the upcoming event this weekend that gives us, as you like, more of that, that you know, that support that, that we're going to need to deliver. And, I've, you know, we, we touched on a few times at various points during the, the Q&A and, and in the presentation that major events are fundamentally different from one-off events or league events. And you want engagement, which, as Jim said, has been phenomenal from sports commissions from the major teams within that area, because we're a one-off area. It's not a threat on a yearly basis to, to some of the activities. So the engagement, the ancillary events that go on around, around major events, you know, benefit everyone in the, in the, in the long run. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's more and more important multi-stakeholder involvement is tied in for the delivery of major events for, for everyone's mutual benefit. We're almost at 10 o'clock, so we'll just take one more question. Uh, and that will be uh, from Matt McCarthy from Rugby Wrap-Up. What are the legacy guarantees for youth and growing the game in America? In the past, there have been guarantees in these bids from other nations that never materialized. I'll start and maybe Jim can, can jump on on the back of some of the FIFA stuff. I think Matt makes a good point. Legacy is something that's been thrown around with major events from way back when. You know, what's the upside? What's the benefit of hosting? You know, be it Olympics, be it a FIFA, be it a Rugby World Cup. How can you how can you do that? I think you know what we've talked about as part of this process of part of our submissions to World Rugby is legacy by the meaning of the word tends to be what comes after. We want the legacy to start from when we're awarded to ensure that we do set the right metrics, that we are realistic in what we're trying to do and that ultimately will make the event more successful. I think, you know, there have been incidents, not just in rugby, but in sports in general, where the point max, max is true is that everyone's so focused on the delivery of the event, you sort of forget about it till the event's gone and then, oh, yeah, we had to do that. We had to tick the box of that legacy element. We want building those development plans to form part of what will be delivered, you know, should we be fortunate to, to host one or either of both of these events. 
Great. There were a few questions that we couldn't get to here in the hour. So um, if anybody has any follow-up questions, uh, please reach out to Liz Beadle or Calder Cahill. Uh, we're going to put their email addresses here in the chat on Zoom um, if you need any additional information. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate it. Thank you.